A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this is the next installment in our ongoing series of Great American Jewish Cities. This time we will be talking about Chicago, and this episode has been generously sponsored um, anonymously as a schus for the entire Chicago Jewish community for a physical, financial, and spiritual recovery during these uncertain times. So before we get into Chicago, so um, first of all, I hope everyone enjoyed the um, the mere virtual dinner uh, last night um, and the virtual tour um, of the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, the Beis Yisrael neighborhood that I had the privilege of uh, giving. Um, you can you can if you missed it, you can see it. It's still online on the website Mir Mir. Uh, Live, I think, um, should have double-checked that, and um, you check it out, and it's right after uh, Rabash Rarieli speaks, so you can you can also see Rabashar speaking, and uh, definitely worth seeing that also, and of course, if you're interested, we could sponsor another future mirror walking tour, or any other yeshiva organization, Virtual tours um, might be the thing now, and the history of any place or institution, um, we could think of something original, so be in touch with me about that as well. Um, moving on to Chicago, so Chicago is a big, huge story. You know, when we speak about the New York, so we're already dividing it up into quite a few different neighborhoods. Chicago, we're trying to get the whole Chicago in one shot. It's pretty crazy, so I'm definitely not going to get the whole thing in one shot. We'll probably need more. Um, so if if I don't get to your favorite personality or era or institution, then don't get insulted about what's left out. We're just going to try to do a little bit of a taste of the great Jewish community of Chicago today. I happen to have a personal connection there. I um, lived there for two years in West Rogers Park over 30 years ago when I was a little baby. So I don't remember. I have no memories of it. Um, But I was there for two years, so I have uh, definitely a a personal connection. But actually, 
A few years ago, I was uh, heading towards to guided trip in Eastern Europe, and I switched planes. I was supposed to meet a group who were coming in from America. It was a group of some sort of, uh, I forget what it was, either a family or a bunch of, some, some, some group together. And I switched planes in Munich or Vienna. You know, I'm out of plane flights. I don't even remember what it means to get on a plane anymore, but we were switching planes and on the connecting flight back, you know, towards our destination to Poland, um, the guy who's sitting right near me on the flight was a very nice fellow, religious Jew. We start schmoozing. Turns out he's on my trip. We happen to be on the same flight. So we start talking about the upcoming trip. And he says, did you eat lunch yet? I said, no, I didn't. So he says, I happen to have some extra sandwiches. Um, would you like to share? And I detect a Midwest accent. I said, where are you from? He says, I'm from Chicago. So I said, what type of sandwiches? He goes, well, you know, I'm from Chicago. It's from, it's from Romanian deli. Um, okay, great. I grabbed a sandwich. I said, what do you do? He says, I own a couple of nursing homes. And I'm like thinking, wow, the trip doesn't even start yet. And I'm already putting people into stereotypes. He's from Chicago. He owns a nursing home and he's eating Romanian deli. So you always have to avoid stereotypes. Now, a lot of what I'm going to say today, tonight is um, I heard over the years, read over the years from Rabbi Wine, Rabberl Wine, who uh, very close with in general, and he got me started years and years and years ago um, in Jewish history. And he's not just a, you know, a master of Jewish history from all eras and from all periods and uh, wealth and encyclopedia of knowledge. But he himself is a, is a product of Chicago and has a lot of personal reminiscences and full of history. So I heard a lot from him and I have a, a privilege to hear many, many stories and history and personalities from very often from his own memory and uh, what he experienced. Not only that, but just as I was preparing uh, this episode, so I, I received a uh, recording of a speech that Rewine just gave the other uh, just a, a couple of days ago, re very recently, to a group from Chicago. And I got a recording from it, and I was able to review a lot of the stories that I was familiar with already and hear a couple of new tidbits. So it's really fresh stuff that I was able to hear from him, and uh, we'll incorporate that as well. So a lot of the stories, I'm not going to say every single one, this is from wine, but you can assume that a lot of the material I was able to get here put together uh, come, does come from him. So the Jewish community in Chicago is, is an old one. It starts before the Civil War with the German-Jewish immigration, like many other places in the 1840s already. Um, and it grows, and the, you know, the big catalyst of, of Chicago's growth in the general sense, is the Great Chicago Fire, of course, in 1871. And um, that, that itself is a story of immigration, not necessarily of Jewish immigration, because the legend at the time that Mrs. O'Leary's cow, which was a myth, it never happened, it was made up by a journalist, was the one who knocked over the lantern and started the fire and destroyed half the city. So um, Mrs. O'Leary obviously was Irish. She was an Irish immigrant. She was Catholic. There was distrust. and There was racism in those days. So it fits into the immigration era. As it happens, there was a fellow by the name of Louis Cohn gambling with Mrs. O'Leary's son that night in 
there's another legend, probably also a myth, that he knocked over a lantern uh, and uh, started the Chicago Fire. I don't know if Louis Cohn is Jewish, but it sure sounds it, so you might even have a Jewish connection there. By the way, October 8th, 1871, the day that the great Chicago Fire wiped out, uh, started, it raged on for a couple of days, but it started with Simchas Torah. So you have even a further Jewish connection uh, there. So the... Um, but the Jews start immigrating later, then the mass immigration, of course, from Russia, from Eastern Europe in the 1880s. Many, many come to Chicago. It, it, it balloons. It becomes a huge Jewish population. It ultimately becomes the third largest Jewish city in the world after New York and Warsaw. In the interwar period, we're talking about 275,000 Jews living in Chicago. It's a huge Jewish community just in the neighborhood of Lawndale, which was the center of Jewish life in the interwar period, was, uh, there was 42 Orthodox uh, shuls. Talking about a, a massive community. Um, Rabbi Wein mentioned how, uh, how um, when he would go to Tashlich, he would go down Douglas Boulevard to Tashlich, there would be 40,000 Jews going down to do Tashlich. And the Chicago Tribune would report the 40,000 Jews cast away their sins into the river. And um, it was a, a booming Jewish community. And these this booming Jewish community, of course, were Cubs fans. You know, it would be uh, Chicago Cubs play a major role in Chicago history, and they play a major role in Chicago Jewish history. And the Jews would go so, they would be such attendees at Wrigley Field that it was the ultimate Cholomite trip. And uh, on Cholomite Pesach, you'd be in the stands of Wrigley Field, all you'd hear would be matzah crunching. You would think, Rabbi Wein said, that you'd think the whole, the whole Wrigley Field was being eating, eaten up by termites. It was such loud crunching from everyone's matzah sandwiches that the Gordon reminds me, you know. We, uh, but the Muncie sponsorship is still open. Hope to get to it. I grew up in Muncie, so the the whole of my trip was to uh, West Point, and you'd have you know uh, huge families of Chassidim from Muncie uh, sp- spreading out their whole uh, Cholamite lunch in the uh, in the bleachers of the of the West Point football uh, stadium. So I guess it's a similar idea. The the, the Jews uh, go to the congregate in the sports stadiums for Cholomite. And there's also, in, in the symbolic sense, the, the idea that, uh, that you have to have a lot of amuna when you're a Jew. You have to have a lot of faith in destiny and history. And to be a Cubs fan for a long, long time, for well over a century, you had to have a lot of amuna that they would win again, that it would come back. And, uh, and, and such was the situation that even when orthodoxy was dying out in the 1950s, the likelihood of Yiddish, I mean, the conservative movement was growing and orthodoxy was going down. That's part of what we're going to talk about soon. But there were people who said that even during that dark time for the future of Yiddishkeit in Chicago, it was still more likely for Yiddishkeit to succeed in Chicago than it was, than it would be for the Cubs to win the World Series. And, you know, thank God both of them happened, so... We're on the right track. And interestingly enough, it's actually the White Sox that might have a Jewish connection because we mentioned this on the Maf, Jewish Mafia episode. There might have been involvement of Arnold Rothstein in fixing the 1919 Black Sox scandal in that World Series. But moving on away from baseball and moving to back to the Jewish community. So the, the future of the Jewish community is always dependent on 
education. And there was no formal Jewish education, just like in New York, just like in other places, non-existent. There are afternoon Talmud Torahs, Hebrew schools. There were individuals who were saved by the education provided in the Talmud Torahs, but it's not something that can be successful on a grand scale. And the many great rabbis who were there, and there are many, there's, I think there's even a book that's been written about the Chicago rabbinate, many great, great, great people, but they're fighting against the tide. The you have to understand the time during the Great Immigration, there's just this, this flow, constant flow, it's endless, there's, it's overwhelming to a certain extent, and it doesn't seem like there's anything to be able to, to do to stop the, the acculturation. Everyone's sending their kids to public school. Public school was the melting pot in those days. Um, for all the immigrants, this, this was the ticket to Americanism, and it didn't seem like there would be any future for Jewish education. There are different waves of Jewish immigration. Like I said, the 1880s is the first time they settle in the Maxwell Street uh, area of the, uh, of the city in, on the old west side of, uh, of Chicago. And the neighborhood changes over time. The immigration around World War I in the 1920s, they settle more in the Lawndale, also on the west side, and there, the the responses, the development of uh, of Jewish education start. Jewish education starts to take hold in several different ways in several different stages. So, move back a second and talk a little bit about the early rabbinate and what it looked like when the first yeshivas were opened. So you had, and we spoke about this in one of the earliest episodes of Jewish History Soundbites. You had Rabbi Yisroel David Velofsky, the Ridbaz who becomes the Rav in Chicago, the chief rabbi, as it were, of Chicago in the early 1900s. He originally came to fundraise for his Pirush on the Yerushalmi, and, and he ends up staying. They ask him to become the leader of the uh, Chicago Jewish community. As it happens, there already was a big rabbi in, uh, in, in Chicago, another Litvisher Rav named Rav Shimon Album. Rav Shimon Album grew up near Kovna, he learned in Valozhin. He arrives in the United States in 1891. He was a rabbi there for about 30 years until he's, he passed away in, in 1921. And he and he is nominally the rabbi. He's working with the kashras and the butchers, and it's not so simple. They the, like in New York, like in other places, it's a tough crowd. There was connections with the mafia. By the way, there was a Jewish mafia in Chicago also. There's a great book uh, called the something like the Kosher Capones, or the Kosher Capones, Al Capone of of, uh, of Chicago, who who is considered the greatest gangster ever, but he might have been the most flashy. He liked the spotlight. He liked being spotted at Cubs games. You have to keep in mind that he was arrested when he was thirty three years old after a seven or eight year career in, uh, in Prohibition era, and and during that time there were other gangsters in New York who had a much longer and much more successful career, but Al Capone was a personality. But either way, there was there were Jewish gangsters uh, that that uh, active in the mafia, um, many, uh, quite a few names, and um, and they uh, and they were active at the time. Also, so they were involved also with the uh, butcher trades, and the the Reb Shimon album ha- was already involved with that, and uh, and. Um, and what happens is, is that the Ridvaz is involved in 
in a new yeshiva that had opened, which is the first yeshiva that opened in Chicago. It opened in 1902, and it was called Eitz Chaim, which was pretty much the most common name that yeshivas were given. Many yeshivas. Eitz Chaim was the Valazhin yeshiva. The Eitz Chaim was Malch, was Kletzk, was the one in Yerushalayim. As it happens, 1902 is exactly the centennial after the Valazhin yeshiva opened, so it's interesting that they named it Eitz Chaim. But either way, the the um, the uh, there's a dispute between Rav Shimon Album and the Red Baz about who has control over the butchers and the kashras. Both of them have this organization, this control, this hashgacha, this, and it's and it and it's not exciting because neither neither side the butchers themselves don't want to be the, the butchers themselves are part of the problem. They don't want to be controlled. And then which rabbi is going to be more involved? And the yeshiva, and the who's in charge of the yeshiva? Is it the Ridvaz or or album? And they say, well, it's really whoever the chief rabbi is. So the Ridvaz says, well, I'm the chief rabbi. So Shimon Alves is not the chief rabbi. I was the rabbi here before you. So that that's not, that wasn't wasn't so exciting. And as as things developed, we're going to see a a rewind pointed this out to me once. As we, every institution, every change, every advancement in chinuch in Chicago and really in many other places as well comes along with with opposition, with naysayers, with a struggle, with a challenge that it's not so simple and it's not so easy. And ultimately, the struggle itself creates a better ending, and that's that, that's exactly what happened with Eitz Chaim, because even you know there's part because of this whole dispute. That's part of the main reason why the Ridvaz had to leave Chicago. It didn't work out. Shimon Album stayed, and um, the Ridvaz left. And, you know, the whole community was divided. Each one was taking sides. There's two factions, all about the different control. And and uh, eventually what happens is that there's another yeshiva that opens up well after the Rivaz leaves, based Medrashler Abanim. And and eventually the two, and there was, you know, the album opposed that as well. And, you know, it's a whole lengthy story about how it developed. But eventually, 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 what happens is that there's a merger. There's a merger between Eitz Chaim and Beis Medrash Larabanim. And they become the legendary and the famous, most important yeshivas in the history of American Jewish life, Beis Medrash Latayra, the Hebrew Theological College, which was in the city proper. It only moved to Skokie in 1957. And they unofficially starred in, in the... In the Time right after World War I, 1918, 1919, there was a few different catalysts that came together that brought out both the merger and the start of um, Beis Medrash Latira. In 1920, they were already on the ground. In 1922, they start building a building. They become an official yeshiva, and they are on the map. So a little bit about Beis Medrash Latira. There was another... Um, um, important Rav who was living in Chicago at the time, Rav Chaim Tzvi Rubinstein. It was actually Rabbi Wine's grandfather, Talmud of Alajan, Talmud of the Nitziv. He had a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael for a period of time, and he came basically like fundraising to Chicago, and they convinced him to stay, he became a Rav of a shul there, and then eventually he was looking to, to um, both for his kids and for others that he had an influence on to find something else. And with a bunch of high school graduates, uh, who had graduated from public school? He starts. So this is a post. Starts as a post high school yeshiva. He starts in his living room with five students, one of whom 
was um, was a son of another rabbi who was also involved in starting the base management tire, Ephraim Epstein. So his son Harry Epstein, who became an interesting personality later on in life, also he was a rabbi of a conservative synagogue in Atlanta for many years. But that's a different story. Maybe when we get to Atlanta, but um, Ephraim Epstein was the brother of the Slabatka Rosh Hashiva, Rameshim Mordechai Epstein. And he is a Rav in Chicago and very involved in Chinuch, very involved in the start of Beis Medrash Latoira. And unfortunately, he had a very tragic life. He lost four children in his own lifetime in various different tragedies. And despite having faced such a terrible tragedy, he became a major involved as a rabbi, as, as a builder of the yeshiva in, 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 uh, in Chicago. He was involved in the Vat Hatzalah during the war. He, was a, he fundraised for the yeshivas of Eastern Europe um, whenever they would come in the interwar period. He was the Rav in Chicago for half a century. He had learned in Slabatka and he arrived in Chicago in 1911 and he, died, and he passed away only in the 1960s. He was there for a long period of time. One of the children that he lost was lost in the Hebron Massacre. Aaron David Epstein. There are actually three alumni of Beis Medrash Latayra who were killed in the Hebron Massacre. I don't know if there's any other yeshiva that had three from one place, one graduates of the of the place who were killed in the Hebron Massacre. In fact, the Mir Mashkiach, Rebaran Chadash, who I just interviewed and also was part of that uh, the virtual dinner and the virtual tour, so he's named after this Aaron David Epstein. He's named for it's his cousin, named for this boy who was killed. The Ephraim Epstein was involved in the Central Relief uh, for to fundraise for the yeshivas in the, during the interwar period, and um, and in, this is when the Chicago Jewish population is at its peak. They're eight percent of the yeshiva of the city's population. Like I said, they're close to three hundred thousand Jews. And that's when Beis Medrash Latayra gets off the ground. Uh, Reb Chaim Svi Rubenstein, Reb Epstein, and especially uh, Reb Shol Silber, another Litvish Rav who actually learned in Lida by Reb Yitzchak of Rhinus, which was the original Litvish yeshiva that had a secular studies, which influenced the way the Hebrew Theological College was developed. He was the real leader of the yeshiva, Reb Shol Silber. He was very diplomatic. He was very powerful, very got things done. He was a had great leadership skills. He was also a big Zionist, he even tried settling in the in the land of Israel at one point and was unsuccessful. So he came back to Chicago and he remained there for the rest of his life. But he's the one who built it up. So Rukhaim Rubenstein, the Velazhiner, is one Rosh Hashiva, Rabshol Silber from Lida, and then you have Rabbi Epstein from Slobotka, another Slobotka Rashiva in the beginning, Rabbi Nissen Yablonsky, who was um, who was a rebbe even in Slabatka during World War One, and and so it's a Litvish yeshiva on one hand, and the, in and Hebrew theological college becomes a very interesting combination. It's a Litvish yeshiva, very Lithuanian yeshiva, the style of learning, to and it's it's a post high school. It's not a high school. The high school comes much later, and it's also a muster yeshiva because of the Slabatka influence. Because of Shrub Shol Silber, there's Zionism is part of the identity of the yeshiva. There's also a goal of Americanism, of getting a college education because they want their graduates to go into the rabbinate. 
to to change the face of orthodoxy in America and to have an influence. And it didn't seem like anyone would ever be hired to become a rav in America anymore unless they had a college degree. So they would encourage the Talmudim and the yeshiva to get a college degree. And uh, and um, um, Reb Chaim Svi Rubinstein, he was also involved in the Vatatzal. In fact, everyone tells the story that when he passed away um, in 1944 during the war, so... They collected on his life insurance policy, and they thought they were going to be able to use it for the grandchildren's to save it up for their college education, for for all the eniklach. And they found that in his will it said that his entire any 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 money that he had left over, including his life insurance, would be given over to the varatzala. He lived for others. He was a he's he lived to teach Taira. And uh, lived for others, lived for other for other Jews. A very special man. Um, some of the other big people who were rebbeim in in the base medical in the early years after Nissan Yablonsky unfortunately passed away at a young age. They brought in Reb Chaim Korb. Later on, the two brothers, Reb Herzl Kaplan and Reb Mendel Kaplan, who were from Baranovich. Reb Mendel Kaplan later on learned in the Mir, and Reb Mendel Kaplan later on became famous as a rabbi in Philly yeshiva. But they both were in base medical and uh, they were master mechanchem. They understood the new generation. Robertsel Kaplan, he used to make a point out of tucking his tzitzis in, inside his, his pants. They wouldn't see his tzitzis. And one time the Talmidim asked him, why are you wearing your tzitzis in, inside? Why don't you wear it out? So he said, because most of the likelihood is that most of you will be going into some sort of profession, accountant, a lawyer, a doctor. That's the likelihood. And if in the 1950s in the Midwest, if you wore your tits out, it just didn't, you know, you didn't. You, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't going to do it. No one was going to do it. So if you remember from your abayim and yeshiva that the only way to wear tits is, is to wear it out untucked, wearing it out prominently outside of your pants, then when you're forced to not wear it like that, because you're not going to walk into a courtroom like that, you're not going to walk into the hospital like that, so you're not going to wear tzitzis altogether. So I want you to remember that your Rebbe and Yeshiva wore tzitzis, but wore it tucked in. And this way, when you come to that situation in life, you're always going to wear your tzitzis. And uh, uh, that was his his vision. Or Mendel Kaplan was also... Master Mechanach probably deserves his own episode of fascinating individual, an impressive person, a real educator, understood people. And he, um, he was the uh, Rebbe in, in, um, in Beis Medjel Torah at the time also. One who was brought in at a young age to be the Rosh Hashiva also was Reb Chaim Kreisworth, later on famous as the Rav in Antwerp. But he was the Krakover Ilui. He was the Ilui from Krakow. He, was a, he came from a Hasidish home. And he learned in Yeshiva's Chachme Lublin. And he was a, a great genius, very charismatic. He was a, he was, he was, he was very, he was young. He was in his 30s. He dressed well. He, the guys looked up to him. He inspired them because he, he said, on one hand, he, he was this, he was this amazing Talmud Chachem, Shiurim were deep and genius. On the other hand, he was in a certain way, I guess we would call him, we would say with it, or, uh, you know, he, he dressed fashionable. He had nice suits and nice ties. Uh, 
and the guys related to him. And he was very influential with a lot of the Talmudim at that time, and many of his Talmudim went on to become big rabbis and Rashi Yeshiva and educators in the Jewish world. And they really had an amazing uh, group of Regensburg and Mordechai Rogov, who was in Shanghai, or David Kaganov, uh, others. And later on, in the dec- following decades, uh, later on in Skokie, would have a host of Rabbeim and Rashi Yeshiva, a lineup that's almost unparalleled in the Jewish world. And Reb Chaim Zimmerman, who was a fascinating character, who uh, grew up in the Ukraine, but he was a nephew of Rebarch Berlibowitz, also a, a bit of a genius. He he became a rebbe. He had smicha for Ramesha Soloveitchik in Yeshiva Srebrenica's Kolchana YU from before the war, obviously. Ramesha Soloveitchik died in 1940. And, and later on he becomes a rebbe, Rosh Hashiva in Skoki. Things didn't work out there. And he um, they had a part ways, we'll say it like that. When he was a rebbe there, so one time, his uh, his Talmidim, his students asked him if they can, you know, it's during the nine days, it's very difficult them for those to go without eating meat during the nine days. So he said, okay, no problem. Meet me at the kosher deli. I don't know if it was Romanian. Romanian opened in 1957, so it's quite possible that it was. But there were a lot of, you know, gourmet food. In fact, we'll get to the to the Finkels, the Rosh Hashivas at Sal, or Nassim Finkels, Parents, they opened the first kosher catering in Chicago. Perhaps we'll get to that as well. So there were definitely was definitely all sorts of food options in Chicago. And um, and he says, meet me, we'll meet there. So they said, Rebbe, we're going to meet there. It's Blaishiks, it's meat. So he says, don't worry. And they arrive there for dinner. And Reb Chaim Zimmerman makes a siyam on a masechta. According to legend, it's even on a long masechta like Bava Basra. And and they said, oh, Rebbe, why don't you just tell us you're making a seams? He said, well, this morning I, I didn't plan on making a seams. What you guys want, really wanted to eat me. I really felt bad. You might tell me that. So I learned Bava Basra this afternoon, and uh, and we we can make a seam. So it's both the genius of Reb Chaim Zerman and the way he was a Rebbe. He later moved on to Eretz Yisrael. Very, very, a uh, bit of an iconoclastic figure. He wrote quite a few Sfarim, one, one of his... His books that he wrote was a, on the international dateline, which I mentioned in another episode, and it was against Rabbi Mendel Kasher, who was also from another episode, about his conclusions about the, uh, the international dateline. There was another person who came along and changed the face of Jewish education in Chicago, and that was Rabbi Oscar Fassman. There was also someone who, someone who uh, should be more famous for the amount of change that he implemented, and he was able to... For the younger ages, you know, we're talking about Beis Medrash Latayra, which is so much that it did for the older, the older guys. Um, but um, but what about high school, elementary school? We have to get to that also. And Rabbi Fassman facilitates the the opening eventually of the uh, high school that's affiliated with uh, with uh, Hebrew Theological College, which we'll speak about a little bit more. But what I want to get to. Uh, really is is um, primary education. You have the, like I said earlier, the Talmud Tairas. A group of very dedicated individuals, they try to get together, the to get, to unite the Talmud Tairas throughout the city. Rabbi Miskin and Rabbi Sachs, others, they, in the 19, 
I think it's the post-war, right, 1940s and 50s, they tried to, I think it might, might have even initial, initially in the 1930s, but they try to get the different Talmud, afternoon Talmud terrorists to work together to become an association. And it's called ATT, the Associated Talmud Terrorists, to improve them, to get better teachers, to have a united front, to beat out the competition. Now, who's the competition? Interestingly enough, the competition is two, competition on two sides. One side was the Federation schools, which was basically Zionistic schools, um, emphasis on Hebrew. Uh, we would probably call it enlightened or maskilic type of a schools. Uh, not hostile to religion, but definitely not traditional, not, uh, not, 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 not religious, not orthodox in that sense. On the other side, you had the Yiddishist schools. Believe it or not, in Chicago in the 1930s and 40s, you had Yiddishist schools, where, which were Jewish, Bundists, communists, they called the schools Shalom Aleichem schools, and, and they were hostile to religion. They were anti-religious, Yiddish language, Yiddish culture, but not Jewish religion. And, and they were a force to be reckoned with uh, at that point. So the Orthodox Talmud Torahs are there to try to combat that situation. So what, uh, what eventually happens is, is the, um, is the, have the combination. Rabbi Fassman, Rabbi Oscar Fassman is the president of Beis Menshe Torah, and he becomes that catalyst for change. Between the yeshiva, between Hebrew Theological College, and this ATT, that combination creates the Ida Crown Academy, which starts as a middle school, 7th and 8th grade. It was co-ed, the day school, and, and, uh, and, uh, and then it, it, it was originally called the Chicago Jewish Academy, then later the Ida Crown Academy, and, and, and then they open a high school. So you have a full high school there, also co-ed, and they they are the institution that kept people Jewish during the 1940s and 50s. Rabbi Wine uh, told uh, told uh, told me the menu once. He said that uh, lunch every day was donated by two Jews in town, one who dealt in eggs and one who was a who made Jello. So they had egg salad and Jello every day for lunch. So you didn't come there for the food. That's definitely that definitely wasn't the the reason. But this was the Jewish school. And this is what kept Yiddishkeit going at the high school level at that point. But then we moved down to the day schools, to the primary schools. And you have, in the post-war era, also the Holocaust survivors, refugees coming into town. The Weizner Rav, Rabbi Meisels, who was an amazing individual. He's the Rav in Weizen, which is a Hungarian town near Budapest, the Chesidish Rav. He had a brother living in Chicago. And he survives Auschwitz. He later writes the Shailos Uchuvis Mekadshe Hashem, which stories I say from every tour that we go to Poland, every time we go to Auschwitz, amazing stories of perseverance, of amazing dedication to try to attempt to keep mitzvahs under the most impossible conditions in the camps. And this is all testimony from a Rav who was there. This is not a legend that's uh, made up afterwards. This is a real, real... Uh, Amazing stories that he had to deal with as a Rav who was uh, in the camps, and perhaps we'll have to save that also for another time. But he comes, he loses most of his family, seven of his kids, his entire town, his entire life. He comes broken with nothing. And here the Vites and the Rav, 
He makes it to Chicago and he rebuilds. He, he rebuilds, he starts from scratch, he remarries, he has a new family, a few of his kids did survive, he had also from his first marriage. And incredibly enough, he, he starts again. And, and one of the things he, his vision was, was to start a school. He takes over, takes over a, a, from a school, there was already a few day schools, there's a hill, there's the, the very famous days, probably the, the most famous day school in Chicago, the Ari Crown Day School, um, which was already a frummer school. It wasn't co-ed. It was only boys and then the only girls. Now, Weitznerov has another uh, uh, school, which was ironically called Beis Yaakov, and it was for boys. So you had a boys' school that was Beis Yaakov. So you might have boys out there who are Beis Yaakov graduates, and that might make them more desirable on the Shidduch market. So that's already competition with Ari Crown. But competition, so now there's a few day schools and they're all competing with each other. That all makes, that makes the whole situation better because everyone's improving and there's more than enough to, to go around. And not only that, but now orthodoxy in Chicago was, was combating the new adversary in the 1950s, which was conservative Judaism. In 1940s and 50s, throughout the areas, especially outside of New York City, there was the trend, which, which is unfortunately known as the death of orthodoxy, you know, in, the, in the trenches. And they mentioned, I mentioned the 42 shuls of Lawndale. So when the neighborhood goes bad on the west side and they start moving further out, further north, to West Rogers Park, to Albany Park, to, to, to all the other neighborhoods, actually Peterson Park, the places where the orthodox community primarily is today. So the, the, um, there's this mass exodus, and it's quite a sudden exodus also. And a friend of mine uh, recently was in Chicago, and someone gave him a tour of some of these old shuls that remained in the, what's, what I guess is called the bad part of town. And, and uh, the, the exodus was so sudden that these big, huge, gorgeous shuls, and some of them were amazing edifices, and gorgeous architecture, and big, and thousands of seats. And they, many of them were converted into churches, when the shuls left and reconstructed in the suburbs, so they became conservative. Almost all of them became conservative. Some of them, there was an interesting Chicago compromise. There was the traditional synagogue where you had an Orthodox rabbi and the davening is all Orthodox, but there's mixed seating because that was the thing. That was the one thing that they weren't willing to compromise on in the 1950s. They had to have mixed seating. So some who didn't want to convert all, all, all the way to conservative, to become a conservative synagogue, they had this compromise of being an orthodox synagogue with mixed seating, and they called it a traditional synagogue. And that's what's happening. And the, and the whole West Side is abandoned. So this friend of mine got this tour, and he says, you're running to Eastern Europe, you're running to Krakow, to all these other places that have old shuls. You can come to Chicago and see old, beautiful shuls that are now churches, there are now other types of buildings that have been completely abandoned, and these were all once bustling shuls once upon a time. So you have um, you have the uh, that as well. Now, what happens is is that um, you have others who uh, who come to Chicago in the 1950s, 60s. Seven, one of the major new hirees in. Base manager Latoya during that time is Rebaran Soloveitchik, younger brother of Rebbeshus Ber Soloveitchik, who, according to one article, one source I read, Rebbeshus Ber Soloveitchik was, uh, Soloveitchik, before he even came to Boston, 
He was offered a position in the newly established Hebrew Theological College, and it didn't work out, and he eventually made it to Boston, and eventually to, to YU. But eventually, his younger brother, Rabbanon Salvegi, did come to Bismarck's Taira, and after a falling out over there in, with the board, he, op- he, he leaves and he opens his own yeshiva, and being that he's a Soloveitchik anical, so he calls it Brisk, Yeshiva's Brisk Chicago. So now you have another yeshiva, eh, that Rabbanon Soloveitchik, who was uh, an amazing person. He was born in Cheslevich, of course, where his father, Rabbanon Soloveitchik, was the Rav. His bar mitzvah was in Warsaw after his father had already moved to America, but the family was still behind. He comes to the United States. He, learned, he studies under Rav Hutner. He studies in YU. He was close to the Ramesha Feinstein. He was a Rebbe in MTJ with Ramesha. He also graduated from NYU as in law school. And then he's a Rebbe, in, a teacher in MTJ in Chaim Berlin. And then he also was a, a, a Rebbe in Intermediate in, uh, Skilchan. He eventually took over his brother's shear, used to fly in from Chicago to give a shear in NYU. Um, uh, so he, at one point in this yeshiva's brisk of Chicago, he opened the division of the yeshiva that would teach shechita. And he called it the Rabavram Weinschneider division of shechita. This Rabavram Weinschneider was the Reish HaShoychtim. He was the head of all the Shoychtim in Chicago, that of all Kashras and shechita. And uh, who had moved, he had retired and left, so they named it for him, and he wanted it to be practical, that they should, that the boys learning in his yeshiva should be able to prepare for Abbanus, and he eventually planned on opening courses in Mila and Safras also, to prepare uh, Miles and and then Seifrim, I don't know if that worked out, but that was the plan. The Novominska Rebbe, Rabbi Yankov Perlau, uh, who we spoke about recently also in an episode, he also becomes... Uh, a Rebbe in in, uh, in Skokie for a period of time. He married a girl from Chicago, the an Eichenstein. Um, the Eichensteins, Zidit Shavar. Zidit Shavar was a Hasidist in in uh, in Galicia. Zidit Shavar, Tzvi Hirsch of Zidit Shavar, was a Talmud of the Naimali Melech, and the Chayz of Lublin was one of a very influential Rebbe in the 19th century. And there was a Hasid, a very unique Hasidist in the fact that they were heavy on the mystical side, in Kabbalah. They wrote Sfarim on Kabbalah. Especially in the later generations of Hasidists, when most Hasidists in Poland especially, they shifted away from Kabbalistic teaching, especially heavy Kabbalistic teaching. Zidetshev kept it strong. Very heavy on the Kabbalah. And a lot of the, the great Hasidists of Kamarna, Spinka, Tash, and other Chassidus of Galicia and Hungary, they all come from Zidetshev. So one of the Zidetshev Rebbe's, Rabbi Yeshua Heschel, he comes to America in 1922, and he settles in Chicago. And his son, Rabbi Avram, takes over the Chassidus, and he's, he lives on until 1966. And he's the father-in-law of the Novominska Rebbe, of Ramesha Meiselman, of Yeshiva's Teres Meisha, who, who he also taught in Skokie for a period of time. His son, Rabbi Yeshua Heschel, is the, is the Zidetshev Rebbe, of Rabbi Eichenstein of, uh, in Chicago till today. By the way, the Harness Stipler Rebbe, the original one who was famous later in Milwaukee and his kids were in Denver, Milwaukee, and other places. So he originally was in Chicago before he went to Milwaukee. So Harness Stipler starts in Chicago. Zidichov is in Chicago. The Weitzner Rebbe eventually comes to Hasidus, becomes major. It's one of the only places in the Midwest where there's a strong Hasidus presence. And that um, that is a major influence on on Chicago Jewish life. So like we said, what are these people going to eat? So that's where the Finkels come into the story. 
Uh, the Rashiva Zatzal, Rabbi Finkel, his father, Rabbi Meir, was uh, born into the Hevron Slabotka family. He comes to the United States. He marries uh, his wife, today Sarah Finkel, and, and she should live and be well. She's still around. And, um, and she was from uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And they settle in Chicago where they open the first kosher catering company. And they become the major suppliers for all events, for all institutions, for all. They, they are one of the major players in Chicago Jewish life. They take a leadership role in the Chicago Jewish community. Nothing in the Chicago Jewish, not fundraisers, parlor meetings for local for local causes, for the yeshivas of Eastern Europe, for the yeshivas of Eretz Yisrael in the post-war, for, 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 I mean, Magin David Adom, right? The Israeli Red Cross, they, they, they host an event for them, for Zionist causes, for pretty much everything Jewish under the sun, Rebellion Meir Finkel and, and, uh, and his wife Sarah Finkel, they're in charge, and then, and it comes from, um, you know, the pe- from the people who they were, and that's the type of home that the Rashiva grew up in. I think I mentioned it in the episode about the Rashiva, but uh, it originally starts with kosher catering. So food is always an important factor in developing uh, Jewish life. And uh, we can't forget about the Tells Chicago that starts. Ramatul Katz, who was the Tells Rashiva in Cleveland in 1960, there's a, he arranges with a group of uh, Balabatim in Chicago to start a branch of the Tells Yeshiva. Twelve students of Tells in Cleveland are sent to Chicago, along with one of the greatest uh, products of Tells, Rabbi Ram Chaim Levin, and Rabbi Chaim Schmelzer, later on Rabbi Chaim Dave Keller, and they, and they, um, and they, and they make their presence known. Of course, this is seen as a competition with Beis Latira. But again, two major yeshivas just make the town even more impressive, actually, Kailim open up. Lakewood opens a Kailim. Rabbi Zucker and Rabbi Francis are still around there, still there, and with their Kailim and other Kailim, uh, and it just uh, keeps on growing. Now, interestingly enough, um, in the, in the, um, talking about Jewish education, so there's education by Jews when it's not Jewish education that also happens in Chicago. The University of Chicago is one of the greatest economics departments in the world. And there's even what's known in economics as the Chicago School of Thought of Economics. And, uh, and uh, you know, in a post, uh, kind, Lord Mainhard Kindness, who was the, sort of the greatest economist of the 20th century, so in the neo-kindness, a, a, in the post, you know, in opposition to his economic theory, which of course I'm not familiar with, but it's just incredible that uh, the amount of uh, economics Nobel Prizes that were awarded to professors from the University of Chicago is unparalleled in any institution in the world, and large percentage of them were Jewish. Milton Friedman, uh, Gary Becker, Richard Thaler, Robert Fogel, I mean, the names can't fool you also, and it was their influence on the whole field that developed of what's known today as behavioral economics, and and that whole field in, is, uh, is uh, very influential. It all comes from Jewish brains in the field of uh, economics. Speaking of prominent Jews who weren't exactly part of the Orthodox community, I mentioned earlier about the Jewish mafia. Uh, you had uh, mafia, you know, gangsters like Benjamin Zuckerman and others, but a you know, more famous figure who might have had ties with the mafia in Chicago was Jack Ruby. 
and Jack Ruby, who was born in the Maxwell area, the original Jewish neighborhood in Chicago, to Orthodox parents who immigrated from the town of Sokolov, which is, you know, famous as, right near Kotsk and Polish Hasidus, and, and it's, uh, and, um, and he's famous as the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald, who was the assassin, or allegedly the assassin, we're not going to get into that, of JFK. Now, Chicago, because it's such a major Jewish center, many visitors uh, come come to Chicago over the years. The great Rashi Yeshiva, the Panav Yisharov, uh, used to come there very often, would speak, or Mordechai Shulman of the Slobotki Yeshiva. Many many times they were hosted by the Finkels, by the way, Rebellion Mayor Finkel and and uh, and Sarah Finkel. And Rabbi Wine says that his parents also used to host these great Rabbanim. Rabbi Wine mentions a speech that he heard from Rav Pinchas Tights, on a visit to Chicago in the 1950s, when he, against all the pessimism of the future of Orthodoxy, of Pinchas Tait, said, this, this is Chicago and the United States are going to become centers of Tyra, and it's up to you, young generation, to do it. And Herzog came to Chicago in 1946, and also left a big impression on the people who met him then. Rav Herzog, Rav Wein, says over the story that Rav Herzog said, I came now from Italy, where I met with the Pope, and I asked them to return the Jewish children who were hidden in Catholic monasteries and other in places during the war. And the Pope refused because they had already been baptized. And he started to cry. And then he said, he turns to these young listeners and he said, so what are you going to do for the Jewish people? You're the future. I couldn't get those children, but what are you going to do? And after they came around to shake his hand, he said, did you hear what I said? Did you understand what I said? What are you going to do for the Jewish people? How are you going to rebuild it? So there's all kinds of uh, very impressive visitors uh, who came over the years. And uh, interestingly enough, there was a Zionist delegation in 1922 who comes very early on, 1922, right after World War I. And that delegation was made up by Chaim Weitzman, Menachem Usishkin, Nachum Sokolov. And they're there for a whole Zionist. Albert Einstein came with them also. And Chaim Weitzman actually grew up in the town of Motala. And there was a Landsmannschaft, which is a group of, which was very common, especially in New York, but in other places as well, wherever there were Jewish immigrants, of uh, people who had come from the same geographical area. And they stayed together as some sort of, first it was a social fraternity, and it was also all kinds of uh, networking, and also to help the community back home, and for all sorts of, very often they had a shul, and that was affiliated with the Landsmannschaft. So there was a Matala Landsleit shul. And the one who was in charge of the shul was the original Cheder Malamed of the town of Matala, and his name was Rebitzel Kaplan. And he was the Cheder Rebbe, he was an elderly man, of Chaim Weitzman. And the Landsmannschaft came to greet Chaim Weitzman as someone who came from their town. And he was, he was very moved, and he said, my, my townspeople, and I feel so connected to you, I feel so close to you, so they invited him to come to the shul, and they invited him to Davin Mencha with them, and incredibly enough, Chaim Weitzman, when he, you know, the head of the Zionist organization, the chemist, very secular, but when he's back with the people from Matala, and their little shul in downtown Chicago, so he's ready to Davin Mencha again, so miracles do happen, and I think I got about a third of the material that I planned, but we will stop here, being that I went only a half hour overtime. And um, so we'll end off with this little taste of Chicago Jewish life. 
This was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGE BS, uh, no, the new email address, excuse me, um, Yehuda at YehudaGabriel.com. Of course, it's uh, connected with the new website as well. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.